a few weeks ago, there was a VBS meeting right after church, and I was in charge of child care. No, actually, it was Kentucky Changers, wasn't it? It was Kentucky Changers meeting, and I was in charge of child care. And which is kind of interesting, but so my my version of childcare is to take them on a tour of the church, and so we we went everywhere. And the final place we went was the church basement. Some of you have been there. It's kind of a scary place. It's dark. It's damp. And it's very fitting that, that I would be talking about that on a on a time of submarine. It's sort of like you're going you know underwater down there because there's a little bit of water every once in a while. And so I take all the kids, you know, from, from, you know, say 12 years old all the way down to about four or five. And we've got a group of 10 or 12 kids that are there and we, we go down to the basement. And they, you know, they think it's kind of cool and kind of creepy all at the same time. And they, you know, they ask a lot of questions and, and you're actually, it's, it's just below us, by the way. If you'd like the, the grand tour at some point, you're brave enough to take it. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll go with you. But there's one little part down there that they think is extra weird and creepy. And it's not what you would think. It's not some dark corner. It's not some place that, you know, that, that looks like somebody's going to jump out at you or something like that. In one of the rooms, way back in that corner, there's still some writing on one of the chalkboards from the last time that it was used. And it's sort of, oh, it's just weird. It's, it's, it's writing from a, a story told, I'm sure, to kids long ago. A Bible story. And so the basement was once used for telling lots and lots of Bible stories to kids. And so what looks now to be a little bit creepy was once a place of, of, of vibrant activity. But they think that's interesting. And, and, and I went down there earlier just to, to reminisce a little bit uh, about, about those, those stories and so on. And I'm curious for you. And, and feel free to give me an answer here. What, what are some of your favorite Bible stories that you remember being taught maybe when you were a kid? I know we've got lots of folks here who, who, who maybe you grew up and you went to Sunday school. You've heard old Bible stories or maybe your parents read them to you. Maybe you have some folks that, that you didn't experience that. So let, let's, let, what, what are some of your favorite Bible stories? What, what, what are the ones that you remember? What do you got? Joseph. Joseph. Story of Joseph. Okay. What else? David and Goliath, yeah. What else? Esther. Esther, yeah. What else? What are the other Bible stories you remember? Moses. We were we were in Branson this last week, and Nancy and the kids went to see the story of Moses uh, dramatized there. What else? What else you like? Noah and the Ark. Noah and the Ark, yeah. Fire. The fire, yeah, I remember that one. Fire. You remember in Sunday school, you used to do the little felt, you know, and they move them around and, you know, that kind of stuff. That was big time. That was like this stuff, you know. That was like the first projectors that they had. It was felt. You know, it's interesting. We remember all those stories. And, and what what's, we, we, in a lot of ways, we teach those stories to children as if they were originally written just as children's Bible stories. But it's interesting, when you start peeling back the layers on some of those stories, they ain't for kids. Know what I mean? I mean, you mentioned the story of Joseph. Joseph was hated by his brothers and sold into slavery. And then they claimed he was dead. And then, I mean, you know, then he has the chance to get them all back and he plays a bunch of tricks on them, on his brothers. You know, hey, kids, go and do likewise. You know, I mean, it's not, it's not exactly, you know, I mean, okay, uh, don't do that. I mean, you know, the story of David and Goliath. You know, here's Goliath who's this ginormous dude who's threatening everybody, cursing at them, 
calling down curses from his gods on their God and so on, David walks up and he says, look, I'll fight this dude. And he runs out there as a little guy and he takes a slingshot and puts one right in the guy's forehead. It says it sinks into his forehead, which that ain't a pretty, imagine if that were Hollywood today. And then he cuts off his head. So, good night, kids. I mean, you know, I mean, think about this stuff. I mean, really, the fiery furnace, these four dudes are going to be dumped into this, this furnace that's heated. It says seven times hotter, so hot that the guards up there couldn't stand it. They, they're dead by the time they throw them in there. And this, this was meant to, to kill them. And yet somehow, miraculously, obviously, God saves them from that. But you know what, what folks originally would have thought? Well, that's it. You know, these guys, they, they, they wouldn't worship this false God, and so they were killed. So good night, kids. I mean, you know, it's, again, these things are used as bedtime stories. We, there's certainly so many things that kids can learn from them, but what they fit into is a broader story of what God was doing and what God continues to do. They're used to illustrate the promises of God and His faithfulness to those promises in spite of how messed up humans have become. Our series that we're in that will will continue throughout the summer is called I Promise. And the idea behind this series is just simply that God has made some promises. They're illustrated by lots of different stories, some of which are very familiar. Some of those stories that we, we tell to kids, and rightfully so, they're great stories to tell. But what we've looked at so far is God's promise at creation. We saw that a few weeks ago, that I will be your God. That's his promise. We've seen God's promise at, at the fall of mankind. When Adam and Eve sinned, we saw God's promise, and that is, I will restore what sin has destroyed. Today we're going to look at a familiar Bible story, one that every kid in Sunday school learns and knows. It's the story of Noah, the flood, and the ark. But as I've said, this isn't exactly one that moms and dads way back when would have viewed as the perfect bedtime story. Nor would they have decorated the nursery in Noah's Ark. Because this is a story that was originally a horror story. Where everybody died. And everything died except a few. And I remember from the old Bible story books. You remember those blue books that you maybe have had years ago? I remember the picture of the ark, and there's Noah, and all the animals, and then all the people outside who were dying. This was originally a horror story, but it's also a story of promise, a very important promise that's still in play and still in effect for us today. So if you got a Bible handy or can get to the Scripture somehow, smartphone, tablet, however you want to get there, look at Genesis chapter 6. This is where the story of, of Noah and the ark begins. We're going to learn a few things today about the ark, just sort of in rapid succession. So I want you to kind of hang in there, and then I'm going to give you one main idea as we look at the rainbow at the end, one main idea that will kind of culminate today, uh, hopefully to be some encouragement, some reminder, and as we focus on God's promise, uh, something we can go back to over and over. So the, the first thing, and, and we're going we're gonna to kind of skip around just so you know, between chapter 6 and chapter 9. So that's where we'll be. So if you've got a Bible, Genesis 6 through 9, just kind of camp out there. You'll flip back and forth just a little bit. The first thing that we learn, sort of parenthetically, just, just as I read this story, one thing stands out to me that, that we don't want to miss, and that is that, that we are at God's mercy. When I look at this story, look with me in chapter 6, look at verse 5. When the Lord saw that man's wickedness was widespread on the earth, and that every scheme of his mind thought of nothing but evil all the time, now let that sink in for just a second. You think the world's bad now. 
Look at that description. Wickedness widespread. Every scheme of his mind was on nothing but evil all the time. You you think our world is bad. Listen, it's been bad before. It's always been bad. Why? Because we live in it. And we're sinful and messed up people. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Then the Lord said, I will wipe off from the face of the earth mankind whom I created, together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. And then look at verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And by the way, that's the only sight that matters. We may not think that we are corrupt, and yet in God's sight, sin is corrupt. Anyway, now the, Lord, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with wickedness. God saw how corrupt the earth was, for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. Then God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I am going to destroy them along with the earth. Again, not exactly a kid's story originally, is it? We're at God's mercy. The Lord looks down and he sees wickedness. He sees the hearts of people and he says it's nothing but evil all the time. There's not a single one of us who can stand before God on our own and claim that we have anything to offer him except a wicked heart. Oh, he's such a good person. No. She's just so so sweet. Just 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 the way she was born, no? We are at God's mercy because we are wicked people. We're born that way. It's simply the way that we are. And without a Savior, without Jesus Christ, we will die wicked people. For a lot said this week about Muhammad Ali. He's from my hometown, so kind of hits a little close to home, I suppose. I've heard a lot about him in my life. <clears throat> Lots of things about who he was and what he did and all kinds of great things and some other not so great things that people didn't like about him and whatever. But I'll just say this. I can't be the judge of Muhammad Ali's soul. I don't know if he ever gave his life truly to Jesus Christ. Maybe he did toward the end. I don't know. But even a person as revered and famous and who did as much as they, they say for humanity as someone like that without Jesus Christ without faith in Him alone for salvation, even someone that we would consider to be a famous, good kind of person dies and goes to hell. And I don't say that about Muhammad Ali. I just say that about because it's in the news. No one apart from Jesus Christ gains entry into heaven. Jesus said it Himself in John chapter 14. If you don't like it, unfortunately, take it up with Him. We are wicked. God will judge. That's His prerogative. Look at verse 14. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it with pitch inside and outside. This is how you are to make it. The ark will be 450 feet long. Kind of get this in your mind. 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. You are to make a roof, finishing the insides of the ark to within 18 inches of the roof. You are to put a door in the side of the ark. Make it with lower, middle, and upper decks. Understand that I am bringing a flood. Flood waters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you will enter the ark with your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. You are to bring into the ark two of all the living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of everything, from the birds according to their kinds, from the livestock according to their kinds, 
from, and from the animals that crawl on the ground according to their kinds will come to you so that you can keep them alive. Take with you every kind of food that is eaten, gather it as food for you and for them. And Noah did this. He did everything that God had commanded him. Let me just say this. In, in understanding that we are God's mercy, if God had not revealed any of this stuff to Noah, guess what he wouldn't have known? He wouldn't have known what was coming or what to do. We are at God's mercy in the sense that we are dependent on him to reveal who he is, what's going on, and what's going to happen. Then look at verse 11 of chapter 7. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day the sources of the watery depths burst open, the floodgates of the sky were open, and the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. We are at God's mercy. Do you get the idea? The rain began to fall, and not only that, not only was it a biblical rain, as we might say, as we've experienced from time to time in the last week or so, but not only that, but the the Scripture implies that something from the ground burst open and came up as well, and that's what helped to flood the earth. And guess who's in charge of all that? It ain't you, and it ain't me. It's God Himself. And then look at chapter 8, verse 1. God remembered Noah, as well as all the wildlife and the livestock that were with him on the ark. God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water began to subside. The sources of the watery depths and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky stopped. And when it said God remembered, in the Old Testament, that just means that, that he, he actuates, he begins to put into practice again his, his timely intervention, his faithful love, and he begins to do something on behalf of Noah. All of this... Just parenthetically, we're at God's mercy. And the truth is that in our world today and and in our churches today and in our lives today, and I include myself in that, one of the best things that we can do, maybe the most important thing we can do today is come to grips again with the fact that we stand at the mercy of a holy God. And we stand, if we're apart from Him, we stand as sinful, broken people. And we're at His mercy And it's important for us to recognize, important for us to remember, important for us to help our children and our grandchildren understand that we are answerable and at the mercy of a holy God. Now, all that was free. I'm going to get to the sermon in just a second. How about that? We learn a lot from Noah's Ark. I want to go, as I said, in some rapid succession, so I hope that you'll kind of hang on. I'm going to give you lots of stuff. There's more stuff here than just the animals went marching two by two. Hurrah, hurrah. There's more, there's more than just the rainbow at the end. There's lots to unpack, and I'm going to try to do it very quickly. What else do we learn from the flood? We learn that we're at God's mercy, but we also learn that life goes on. And you'll see off to the side there on your bulletin some, some different subpoints of this. And so really the, the whole point of God's covenant with Noah, the rainbow and what God is doing, is that even though he's going to judge sin and wipe everything from the face of the earth and essentially start over, his intention is that life would go on. And that he's going to begin again. There's another chance given to humanity. Realize that God is the God of another chance. And I don't know if you came this morning looking for another chance, but I'm glad you're here because God is offering it to you. Another chance. You say, you don't know what my life is like. No, and I don't care in a good way. (laughs) Because God doesn't care in a good way. God only wants to offer you another chance. Redemption by the power of Jesus Christ. The past wiped away. Sins remembered no more. And brand new life given to you. And essentially in the flood, that's what we learned. That life goes on. There's a few things here to note. First of all, life goes on in spite of sin. Chapter 8, verse 21 When the 
Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. This is Noah's offering to him. He said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of man, even though man's inclination is evil from his youth. And I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night will not cease. Life, God says, will go on. Look at verse 11 of chapter 9. I confirm my covenant with you that never again will every creature be wiped out by the waters of a flood. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. God's already said, look, I know sin's going to happen. But life goes on even in spite of sin. God allows sin even though he hates it. Even though man is entirely sinful, he says he starts over. Even though humans spit in his face, curse his name, refuse to acknowledge him, persecute his people, deny his existence, live independently from him, pretend to know and love him, but really don't. They do what is evil in in his sight. They claim to have all the answers. They say he's an old-fashioned idea. Even in spite of all that, God lets life go on. Now that in and of itself is a gracious act. I don't know about you, but I've thought before, boy, if I were God... That person and that person and that person. <laughs> Lightning bolts. I'd get them just all at once. Actually, what I'd do is I'd throw one over there and they'd look over there. Bam! And I'd get them right here. It's exactly what I'd do. If I were God, I wouldn't let that person, I wouldn't let these things happen. Guess what? God is too gracious. God is more gracious and more loving. Now, God is holy, but he's also loving. It's all at the same time. It's not one or the other. It's holy and loving. God will judge sin, but he's also loving and gracious. And so he lets life go on. And Peter tells us he lets life go on so that we have the opportunity to come to know him. Life goes on in spite of sin. And for you this morning and for me this morning, regardless of what sin is overwhelming you in your life, look at God's graciousness to allow you this next chance to hear from him even just this morning. Life goes on in spite of sin. Life also goes on because of God's provision. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear and terror of you will be on every living creature on the earth, every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. They are placed under your authority. Every living creature will be food for you. As I gave the green plants, I have given you everything. However, you must not eat meat with its lifeblood in it. Life goes on, and God intends to provide for it. He, he, he says again, just like he did at creation, here's all the stuff that you may eat. God provides for us. There's corn growing in the field behind our house across the street. It's taller than when we went on vacation a week or so ago. God continues to provide. Not a single one of us can make any of that grow. Not a single one of us can create something out of nothing. And yet that's what God does and provides for us. And after the flood, he says, I'm going to continue to provide for you. Life goes on and it's always because of God's provision. And and then thirdly, it's always by God's grace. Look at verse 12 of chapter 9. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant. That I am making between me and you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all future generations. I have placed my bow in the clouds. And it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I form clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures. Water will never again become a flood to destroy every creature. The bow will be in the clouds and I will look at it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all the living creatures of the earth. Do you realize and notice here that there's nothing that humans are to do? 
God doesn't say that if you'll do these things, I'll keep my word. If you'll do these things, I won't send that kind of flood anymore. God just says, I'm not doing it. This is His gracious act. Life will go on always by God's grace. You are and I are today what we are and where we are by God's grace and His alone. God doesn't say, if you'll do these things, you make a deal, and then maybe I'll think about it. He just says, look, whenever you see the rainbow, you just be remembered. Life goes on because I allow it. Life goes on because I'm gracious and I'm loving. And in spite of the overwhelming circumstances in your life, God intends for life to go on. You may think it's over. You may have contemplated ending it yourself. But God intends for life to go on. Life goes on, and you'll see it's continued there below it. Life goes on because God's not finished. Life goes on because God's not finished. God wasn't finished then, and He's not finished now, and He's not finished yet. This really, this whole flood story is a preview of what is to come. God eventually shut the door behind Nora. Nora, that's my daughter. Behind Noah. That's great. Behind, behind Noah. That's pretty good, isn't it? They got on the ark, and who was going to shut the door? God eventually shut the door behind them, and judgment followed, and there was salvation only for those in the ark. Only for those who trusted in the Lord. And until He shuts the door of His final judgment here on earth, He's not finished. And He told Noah, look, I'm going to do this, but I'm not done. And one day He will come and shut the door, but until He does that, until Jesus returns, then God is not finished, and neither should we be? And until then, we have the opportunity for a few things. First of which is to trust. Just like Noah. Chapter 6 tells us that Noah was righteous. He was blameless. He was different from everybody else. He was a man of faith. He knew God. He listened to God. He built an ark for crying out loud when it hadn't done what God said it was going to do before. He builds an ark and then he got into it. It might have seemed crazy, but that's what God said to do. And you know what the verse says? Noah did everything that God commanded him to do. It seems as if those who in the Scripture did everything that God commanded them to do pleased God. It seems that faith, as Hebrews tells us, pleases God. It seems that trust pleases God. Now, we're not good at it, are we? Build an ark. Because it's going to rain like crazy, and I'm going to flood everything and kill everybody but you. (laughs) What? Some of the things that God wants you to trust Him on might seem a little bit crazy, but God, you don't understand. God, if I do that, if I don't do this, God, if if, if if I make this decision or don't make that decision, God, I'm not sure that you totally get it. And God just says, will you or will you not trust me? God's not finished, and so there's opportunity for us to continue to learn to trust Him. Not only trust, there's opportunity to wait. Do you like to wait? It was kind of awkward, wasn't it? An awkward pause right there. What's he doing? Is he crying? Does he forget what he's going to say? Does his iPad go out? He doesn't have his notes anymore? What, I mean, what? Waiting's hard. It's weird, isn't it? Noah got into the ark, and guess what? It didn't rain immediately. He had to wait for the promised flood. 
He had to wait to see if the ark would protect them. Would this thing float or would it be a submarine? I mean, what would happen? He had to wait for the flood to crest and then wait for the water to recede. He had to wait for the raven to come back that he sent out and then the dove that he sent out three times. He had to wait for that. And there's no record that God said anything to them during the flood while they're on the ark. He spoke to them before. And then when the flood was done, he said, it's time to get out of the ark. He spoke to them. Then. But, but some estimates will tell you it was over a year that they're on the ark. That long before the water rose and then receded. And God says nothing. At least that we know of. Trusting God always involves waiting. And silence sometimes. And arcs and smelly animals and unpleasant things. And floating around, it seems. And then some more waiting. For Noah, he waited a year. And for you and your situation in your life, it may be longer or shorter. But trust me that trusting God always involves waiting. Because waiting proves that we trust. You ever done that with children? Make them wait on something? You ever told them, you know, one side of maturity is delayed gratification. While you sit there and badger God over and over and over and over and over. Aren't we great at growing up? (laughs) You know what? Trust me, you say to your kids and your grandkids and the young people around. Just trust me. I I promise I'm going to come through for you. And yet, how is it that we handle waiting on God? Not real well. I wonder what you're waiting on. Is it something relationally or maybe a job or something physically you're dealing with? God's not finished, and so I encourage you this morning, keep waiting. That's not real encouraging, Pastor. Well, Noah was told, get on the ark, and for a year they floated around. God said nothing. Just water and death everywhere. And yet they waited. And then what's interesting is as soon as they exited the ark, there was a sacrifice, which is the next part that we have opportunity to do. Look at verse 20 of chapter 8. Noah built an altar to the Lord. This is immediately after he's left the ark. He took some of every kind of clean animal and every kind of clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. When God smelled the pleasing aroma, he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of man, even though man's inclination is evil from his youth, and I will never again strike down every living thing as I've done. Noah offered what was called a burnt offering. If you're not familiar with Old Testament offerings, understand the burnt offering was completely consumed, every bit of it. And it was a sign of complete devotion to the Lord. And the aroma that God smells was not the burnt flesh. It was the aroma of a life completely dedicated to Him. It's a play on words. This offering was to be completely consumed, just like we, the Scripture shows us, are to be completely consumed with following our Lord Jesus. In Romans chapter 12, just write down the reference, Paul said that we are to be living sacrifices to offer our bodies as living sacrifice, burnt offerings to the Lord, completely consumed with Him. The call to follow Jesus is a call to come and die to ourselves, to surrender it all to Him. It's a whole life commitment, everything involved. What He's looking for is what Jesus spoke of in Luke chapter 9, and that is deny yourself, take up your cross daily, 
and follow me. There is a sacrifice of ourselves that we have opportunity for because God's not done with us. Maybe you start today with that. And then, fourthly, the opportunity to multiply. Chapter 9, verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Then look at verse 7. But you, be fruitful and multiply. Spread out over the earth and multiply on it. God saved a righteous man and his family and then told them to multiply. Now clearly that has physical implications. They were to have babies. They were to multiply physically and fill the earth and populate it and so on. But surely God meant something spiritual as well because he was telling this to a righteous man and the people who were with him and following him. And as Christians, as a church... We've got to be concerned with multiplying ourselves, certainly physically, if God blesses you with children and praise God, but also spiritually. Our focus, I really believe this, and, and, and I know some would disagree, but I, I, I firmly believe it, that our focus as the gathered church, as Elm Grove Baptist Church, as this local body of Christ, our focus has to be on multiplication. I don't necessarily mean church growth. I just mean on multiplying ourselves spiritually. Which means that we, we've got to focus on things like Vacation Bible School and children's ministry and youth ministry and Kentucky Changers and talking with your kids and missions things that get us out there multiplying ourselves. And, and, and I realize that some say, well, what about this and what about that? Listen, this is not to the exclusion of taking care of folks. But the mission of the church, the mission of Jesus was to seek and save that which was lost. And our mission has to be the same. And that's why I love that we come here on Sunday morning and we're somewhat inconvenienced because the decorations may interrupt what we normally do. I love it. And I love when all the kids gather down here. And I love the fact that we see stories of what our young people are going to get to be involved with. And I love the fact that we do outreach stuff. And we continually try to get ourselves out there because that's what we are called to do. That has to be our focus. And I'm so excited to see the, the young people that God has brought to us. And listen, I talk to you and I know you're excited too. I know you you get excited. And I remember, I remember talking with members who, who now have... I've done their funerals, and they used to get so excited about the young people that we gather here on Sunday morning. Listen, church, don't ever get tired of that. That's got to be our focus. And then, and then finally, we have the opportunity to govern. God says here in verse 5 of chapter 9, I will require the life of every animal and every man for your life and your blood. I will require the life of each man's brother for a man's life. Whoever sheds man's blood, his blood will be shed by man, for God made man in his image. God intends for life to go on, and so he puts some boundaries and some justice in place. Now there are some things that are clearly implied. One of the things that's clearly implied here is that human life is more valuable than animal life. And I, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to get on any kind of soapbox this morning. But when God says, if an animal or a man takes another man's life, another human life, that human, that animal is to die. He's placing a value on human life that he does not place on animal life. There is never in the scripture a, a life for life when a person takes an animal life. That's not in the scripture. Now, now, there is life for life when a person takes another person's life. 
And and we, we, we understand, we alone, it says, for God made man in his image. We alone are made in God's image. Animals are for our sustenance, for our enjoyment, for our companionship, for our use. But they are not to be elevated to equal status with human life, ever, for any reason whatsoever. Now, I know they're important. I'm not denying that. We've got two cats that I love to hate. <laughs> okay? I said love in there, didn't I? I mean, you know, we went on vacation for a week. They didn't run away. I just, you know, it was, I'm blaming Christy. That's who I'm blaming. You know, you're supposed to let them run away. They came back, unfortunately. But this controversy seems to be a popular one these days. And I'll tell you this, no matter what your views and your opinions are on the Cincinnati Zoo incident, if we are to agree with God's stance, if we are to be in agreement with what God says and what He values, no matter what your views are on that, and then we must continue to assert that human life is far more valuable to Him than any and all animal life. Period. Again, no matter what your views are, it's just, it's just an illustration that we can use and again highlight the fact that God here in Genesis tells us that human life is valuable, more valuable than animal life. Not only that, but all human life is valuable to God. All human life. Even the lives that we disagree with. Even the lifestyles that we think are wrong or evil. There is no human life that is to be taken or degraded. God puts no stipulation on it here in Genesis. He doesn't say that if it's a righteous person, well, then you need to make sure to get justice for them. He doesn't place a high value only on those who follow him. And then by implication, all human life should be valuable to us. When life is taken, it's taken from all of us. When a human is dehumanized or bullied or insulted or cheated or done wrong, it's done against the image of God in that person and against all of us. And of all people, we as Christians should value human life to the point that we no longer participate in those kinds of activities. We've got to teach our children that even when we disagree with someone, we have no right to dehumanize or degrade or to bully them whatsoever. You say, well, I've never murdered you know, anybody, physically hurt anyone. I mean, I, you know, Jesus said, whoever calls his brother a fool has murdered him in his heart. Whatever you did or did not do for the least of these, Jesus said, you did or did not do for me. And he also said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Life should matter to us like it matters to God. We know it does. Even atheists cry at funerals, don't they? Life matters. They don't know why. They're apart from God. They don't really, they can't tell you why life matters. They just can tell you that it matters. Why? Says who? Well, says me. Life matters. We know it. Human life must be defended and accounted for. God says, I will require. We're answerable to God, by the way, as a society for what we do with human life. From the unborn to the elderly. From those who are disabled to the terminally ill to the mentally ill and everyone else along the way. We are accountable to God for what we do with human life. A lot to learn from the ark. A lot to learn from the flood. Lots of different things. But I want to leave you with one thought this morning. Life goes on because God's not finished. So let me just encourage you, get into the ark and ride out the flood. Now that's a fancy way of saying trust Jesus. Because the greater and better ark, the means of salvation that ultimately is revealed is Jesus Christ himself. Our situation isn't much different from theirs. The world is filled with evil. And one day God will judge again. One day God will shut the door. But we've been provided with a greater means of salvation than even the ark was. And His name is Jesus Christ. 
He's the new and the better ark that's provided by God for the flood of life until He returns one day. He is our vehicle through a world that is flooded with sin. He's our safe passage out of the wrath of God. And as life goes on, a question for all of us is, will we trust Jesus enough to get completely on board with Him? Because God's not finished, will you ride out the storm, the flood that you're in? How do you do it? You trust. You wait. You give yourself completely to Him. You do what you can to multiply yourself. And you defend human life. wonder what your flood is today and how you're riding it out. Are you on your own? Or have you gotten into the ark that is Jesus Christ? He said that once you're there, He'll never let you go. But there's only one way for salvation, one way to be protected from the flood of sin, from the flood eventually of God's wrath and judgment, and that is Jesus. He said it in John chapter 14. The disciples asked Him, how can we know the way to where you're going? And Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. In verse 6 of John 14, no one comes to the Father, He said, except through me. He's the ark. This morning, my encouragement to you is no matter where you are and where you find yourself in the flood, maybe you're like Noah and the flood has come because of other people's mess-ups and sins and problems. And you'd simply say, Lord Jesus, today I'm going to get into the ark with you and I'm going to ride this thing out. I'm going to trust. I'm going to wait. I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to multiply. I'll govern. I'll do all the things that you've shown me in Scripture, Lord. First of all, though, I'm just going to get in the ark with you. I'm going to trust you. Maybe that's your decision today. Would you pray with me, please?